Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia-Pacific is not your average supply chain podcast. We feature prominent industry voices, thought-provoking commentary on news, current affairs, and the latest technologies, while connecting you to companies and innovative thinkers who are transforming supply chains in our region and across the world. Don't listen to the same old, same old. Be sparked by new ideas only on Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia-Pacific. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia Pacific. My name's Jonathan Kempe and it's a pleasure to be with you once more for week number five of our 10-part series in technology and supply chains. We've spoken with a bunch of different people already, some industry luminaries, and now we're looking at some different vendors, suppliers of software, and I get to ask them questions about what they do, what they stand for, what they've built to date. This week, we speak with Robert Petty, who's the founder and CEO of Prompt, a software company focused on the logistics industry. Robert has an extensive career in logistics, stretching all the way back to when he processed pays for a trucking company. We'll hear about that dramatic story, which is fantastic. And he also worked in Toll Global Forwarding, where he was responsible for designing and developing a global visibility and analytics platform. He's the CEO of Prompt, prompt prompt.global, which has an interesting remit as a software company. And I'm interested to chat with him about some trends in the industry, where we might be going and where we could be heading from today onwards, but also to hear Prompt's story and to hear how their solution augments or assists people inside supply chain. So strap yourself in. It's time for us to get to know Rob a little bit better, to understand what Prompt stands for and does, and to hear about trends in supply chain. Well, as we've heard from the intro, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Rob Petty from Prompt Global, who joins us all the way from where whereabouts are you dialing in from, Rob? Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn, New York, a place I have never gone to, but it sounds fascinating. And I've seen people who've come from there. And um, what's the weather like over there, over here in New Zealand, ANZ? It's been a bit wet and windy, has it? Um, I... My Fahrenheit to Celsius calculation isn't spectacular, but it's in the uh, 60s or 70s right now, and just a, a pleasant day. 60 to 70. I think that's about 200 degrees Celsius, if my maths serves me correct. I'm not sure. People will correct me on that. It's probably. Uh, I think you're thinking degrees. more of the Kelvin scale, but we'll keep <laughs> going with right. it. We'll, we'll just keep going. As mentioned from the intro, uh, talking with various folk over this technology series is a fascinating endeavor because not only do we get to dissect what's happening with technology and the integration of technology into supply chains, we get to hear from practitioners, vendors, suppliers, people who are actually using software in its context or hardware as necessary. And so talking with Rob is a really great privilege because we get to hear from someone who's built something um, and has had a long history in supply chain logistics. Rob, why don't you just give us some insights about where you started and something that you might have learned along the way? Sure. So I uh, entered the logistics industry in 2009. I graduated university in 2008. I spent a year as a, uh, a day trader during the financial crisis absolutely hated it and ended up picking up a consulting project at a near bankrupt trucking company where I was helping them figure out why they were going bankrupt. Uh, And honestly, that job lasted a day because on my first day there, uh, the gentleman I was supposed to be working with who ran the driver payroll, he's probably two or three years older than me. So we 
bunch of sub 25, 26 year olds. He decided that he was, he didn't want to work with me and pretended to cut his wrists at the office. Wow. So he was asked to leave and never come back. So on my first day, I ended up with my job and his job. Wow. Okay. And so I ended up, yeah. So I, it was a Monday and payroll was due for 200 drivers the next day. And I had to figure it out. So I ended up taking over driver payroll for a 200 person owner operator bid of a trucking company. And it was utter trial by fire. Wow. That is more than the deep end. So the person who was supposed to do the job self-harmed had to be sent home. You had to then learn it on the fly and then face up to 200. Did you get it done in time? What was the end result? Well, here's the thing. And this is something I've taken with me since. You never screw up somebody's pay. And by that, I mean... You figure out how to get the job done. You figure out how to get it done on time. You learn from any mistakes along the way. But in this case, uh, there was a immediate, let's call it a, uh, a, a learning experience if you got something wrong. So at the beginning of uh, this transition, there were probably two to three mistakes per driver paycheck on 200 drivers. It was a lot. After mm -hmm. about 45 days, we were down to maybe five over the entire pay cycle for the drivers. So we reduced it a lot, but that was also because when we got it wrong, and it wasn't always me, it was other people along the way in the process, but I was the face of it. And the drivers would come into the office and explain to me why I was terrible at my job and how hard they work. <laughs> And occasionally there were switchblades or tire irons or other items for extra persuasion in the office. And after that, you try really, really hard not to make a mistake. And yes, I'm yeah. serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that, that reminds me of a few different things, but in particular, how personal uh, the supply chain industry can be like, you're not just kind of dealing with things that move from A to B, you're dealing with a very people centric industry. And so their response, which, you know, for them might be a bit extreme walking in with a tire iron and saying, I hope you've got my payroll done properly. Yeah. Um, and, and done yeah. correctly because they've worked yeah. 14 hour days, five days a week, some of them driving 400 miles a day doing store deliveries. It was a really hard job for these guys and women as well. And, the all they wanted at the end of the week was to be paid the right amount. It wasn't a lot to ask for. Yeah. And so I can understand from that, and, and this goes into what I'd like to discuss with you now, is uh, the evolution, not just from a time like that, which has similarities to times these days, but how you've seen things move or change and, and the current status quo we find ourselves in. But if you think about that to where you are now and you, you sort of zoom out to how the industry has evolved and where it's currently landed, what are some of your observations? Do you notice things that are similar, some things that are different? Is there anything that stands out that's happening right now that you can identify? Well, I caught the tail end of the old version of this industry. When I was in the space or when I started in the space, it, there were no masters of supply chain at MIT. There were no logistics technology incubators. It was basically you start in a warehouse or you start as a driver and you worked up into management in these companies. And sure, there were... MBAs, there were people with experience outside the industry. Not everybody's a former driver, but it wasn't the way it is now, where everything's a bit more, for lack of a better way to put it, corporate, a little bit more 
buttoned up white collar. It was a little bit, a little bit tougher around the edges. And I, I think you're also seeing that in the way the products are presented because back then in 09 and 10 and the early part of my career in logistics, it was all about results. You were, were focused exclusively on your on-time percentage for your deliveries. You were focused on, are you completing your pickups? It was focused on real things. I think along the way, we've lost a little bit of that and we've focused more on buzzwords and we focus more on big numbers and things of that nature that like create great marketing sound bites. But if you're a, if you are working at a port and you are in charge of drayage pickups, you don't care as much about the technology you're using. You care about a good queuing system that is, is simple, that the drivers abide by, that ideally matches the driver with the load as quickly as possible and keeps things running. It's not about how many API integrations this mm. piece of software has. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point. And I think as reflective of a bunch of conversations that we've had on this technology series, but also in the wider industry, where you've kind of got folk who've dropped into the industry with you know a good degree of intention, I would say, but perhaps opportunistically, maybe that's the way to look at it. Um, huge amount of investment in things that are very tech heavy. But like you've just described, the average person at the port or at the dock who's making on the ground decisions potentially on the fly, their headspace is completely different. And have you seen that sort of disconnect happen over time or is it a more recent set of events? It has escalated quite dramatically from 2019 through 2022. You had right. a couple things happening. You, As you mentioned, Jonathan, there was a ton of money that flew into the sector all of a sudden, or what felt like all of a sudden. I mean, when I started the logistics technology side and getting involved in that in 2015, people were raising maybe $20, $30 million, best case scenario. Now you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars and people don't didn't even bat an eye in 2021. The the other part of this, and it's important to realize this, is 2020 to 2022, the profit margins on shipments were higher than they've been in years and years and years. You had ocean carriers making the same amount of money in a quarter that they did over the past 10 years. So people came in with writing investment checks. Companies had a lot of money to spend on software, but this was an anomaly period. It wasn't normal logistics with 5% margins and people don't really care how many feet off the coast their shipment is. They just care that it clears customs on the right day. Yeah. Yeah. We were just in a weird, weird period of time and now we're out of it and now we're back in the normal part. And I think it um, reminds me that um, if folk who have been observing the industry were sort of parachuted in at around this time, like let's say it's the last three or four years, they would have seen the rise of technology-centric companies or companies that were framing their offerings purely, almost purely around technology. Uh, but those same companies enjoyed the bonuses that were afforded companies who were on the ground and you know, supplying services over this COVID disruption period. But that's a purely abnormal period of time to gauge any degree of business success. So you've kind of got these folk who may not have known all that much about the industry, have now created a solution which they think should be fit into that industry and should work well. And then they've, have, they've got the anomaly of COVID, um, almost validating what they've suggested. But now we're in this new normal. 
how do you think that those sorts of folk will fare now that things have started to normalize? Do you perceive that there might be some sort of downturn when it comes to technology or companies involved in that space? I think it's an inevitability that there's a downturn and that there's a weeding out of the weaker companies at this point. And it sounds a bit maybe doom and gloomy, but at the same time, there were a lot of companies that have raised a lot of money that aren't, uh, had, that haven't necessarily been fiscally responsible, that have been spending to solve these problems, to find product market fit, all these sorts of things. And their revenue just isn't going to sustain their expenses. And quite frankly, a lot of their product market fit is is weak anyway. I, I don't want to name companies here, but a lot of these things are are nice to have, not necessary products. And the the nice to have products are the first ones that are going to get cut. Like I was talking to somebody recently and they were saying that in the visibility space, uh, real-time tracking has gone from a, a capital expense to an operating expense. Yeah, wow. And in doing so, taking it off of the investment side and making it a day-to-day expense means that now you have to work around that for your profit and loss. And real-time tracking is quite expensive, especially if you're tracking from multiple companies and multiple sources. Mm-hmm. So like, just thinking about how they're going to work that into their already shrinking margins and the impact that that's going to have on the many visibility players from all these different angles out there from devices to, to APIs to other areas, it's it's not going to be easy for everybody to stay around. Yeah. And I, I think that sort of space, as you've identified, is very contested. There's lots of companies who seem to be offering something that's really similar. And it, it sort of reminds me about of a macro level trend. And I have to drop this in here because otherwise, you know, we'll get in trouble for not really being on point. And we like to be that on Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia Pack. Um, AI has started to, or we probably should be more specific, large language models and natural language processing has started to really transform how so data is accessed and how software features are built and, and a whole plethora of other things. When, when you think about AI, being someone who understands the industry and also has a technology background, what's your thoughts on that as a macro level trend? Is it really a thing or is it just something that's going to come and it's going to go? Speaking as somebody who spent time working on RFID as well as blockchain technologies, I filed a provisional patent on an RFID Faraday cage. I uh, sat on some of the beta boards back when they were a thing, as well as we worked with uh, TradeLens before they were disbanded. And now this whole AI trend. Um, AI is actually the easiest one in terms of seeing a very quick return on investment. Hmm. So... Like we're using it internally for things like improving our code and debugging and finding solutions. And it's taking junior developers and turning them into mid-level developers very quickly. We're looking at ways to apply AI in our business and with our customers in logical ways where they also can understand how the large learning model actually works in order to make sure that we're solving the problems that they have in a manner that's acceptable to their business. I think... It's very convenient that all these things are out there, but at the same time, unless you understand how these things are working underneath and the origins, there's not always a high level of comfort. When you compare this, however, to like a a blockchain, for example, the use cases here are a lot clearer. The cost of the technology is a lot, lot cheaper. There's nothing out there like the coin equivalent in the AI space that you had in the blockchain space, which makes things a little bit murkier. It's quite clean. 
and you, you put some information in, you get some information back. Whether or not it's relevant, less important. Mm -hmm. But the potential is very much there. Excellent. I think that's such a good summary. And it personally validates an opinion I shared in the last podcast about AI, about usability. I, I actually see the new spate of tools that are coming out now are proving themselves to be useful in lots of different ways, almost instantly. And if you sort of wind back to what the crypto story was all about and what blockchains were about and, and what the, the wider story about NFTs and Web3 and all, all of those sorts of things were trying to say, they never really said anything great about value adds, about usability, about transforming an existing process. But like you've just said, and I've worn the CEO hat as well from someone who's had to employ developers, if I could get a junior developer to mid-tier relatively quickly, that is an instant saving and an instant efficiency gain and potentially leads to you know greater profitability in a shorter period of time. That's a tangible change. And if AI, LLMs, NLP, bringing those sorts of things about, they're the sorts of things as a business leader you should be pursuing. So I very much applaud your position. And as you can see, folks, you've got someone who understands the technology, understands how to apply it, and no doubt it's transforming their business. But let's get into that. Prompt Global, really fascinating company. And I've done a bit of a deep dive into what you've done and, and where you've come from. But I want to hear this from the horse's mouth. Tell me about Prompt Start. What was the actual motivation for starting the company? And how did you really get into the market? What was your methodology that you employed to do that? Sure. So Prompt actually was our second attempt in the logistics technology space. So when I left Toll Global Forwarding in 2015, I started another company called Lading. Lading was going to be an analytics company that was a plug-in to CargoWise and other big freight forwarding systems. And we thought, okay, for a, uh, a SaaS-related pricing model, we're going to help small and mid-sized forwarders better understand their data. After trying to sell this platform for about six months and hearing the same feedback from every single company, we realized that people in 2015 weren't tech savvy enough and the companies weren't tech savvy enough and the data quality was not good enough in order to make a log tech business work. So we pivoted lading into a services company. We became a platinum level CargoWise partner. We worked with some of the largest freight forwarders in the world, uh, building a very, very good base of uh, relationships and just overall knowledge. Uh, and that was where we were until we started Prompt. So Lading was founded in 2015. Prompt was founded in 2020, basically designed to help take the knowledge that we've gained over the years working as a services business with large forwarders and creating tangible returns on investment via software to these companies. So we very much looked at filling the gaps of these major solutions. And we did that using our, our credibility and knowledge. So mm. being able to say that we've been in the space for years, being able to not be coming out of an incubator, but instead having the real world knowledge of working with these companies, how they operate, um, the shortcomings, what they need in order for this to be successful, what a tangible return on investment looks like and the ability to solve real problems allowed us to hit the ground running hard and fast with prompt. We picked up a couple top 25 forwarders right out of the gate because we had relationships and we had something that was solving a real problem. And that was a very, very fortunate position to be in, especially because everything we've done up until this point has been self-funded. So it's not like we've been working with 10 or $20 million of VC funding to find product market fit. 
we needed to get that right pretty much from day one. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess flexing your muscle there on understanding what they need was super critical. And you mentioned there that integration with CargoWise and we all know that WiseTech has a, a plethora of solutions available to various market players. Did you find that was kind of like a stepping stone approach? Folk were kind of familiar with that software stack. And so building on top of it with a real value add, but then adding in your own flavor, mixing in your domain knowledge was the winning solution. Was that kind of how it played out? Exactly. So like we, we're still doing a little bit of consulting work with CargoWise. We're still predominantly selling our software to CargoWise users, even though we've branched out to other solutions. But we know the gaps in a system like CargoWise. We know CargoWise has more than half of the market share and 90% of the top 50 freight forwarders or whatever the statistic is in their, uh, in their presentation information. But we also know which parts of CargoWise are just a giant pain in the neck to work with. Right. And we built software to make those operate better. And that's how we picked up companies like Siva for, for solutions that CargoWise has internally, but ours is better and faster. And sure, CargoWise is, is free, but we're, they're still saving a lot of money using our software and paying us relative to going the CargoWise route. And it's been very, very useful because we can have an honest conversation and say, hey, we're guessing you're having this issue. Yeah, we're having that exact issue. How do we fix it? Oh, here's a piece of software that fixes that exact issue. Mm. Where do I sign? Done. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can see it's a complementary way to enhance something which CargoWise does by all reports rather well. It, it is that operating system, but much like you might have a cumbersome operating system that say Microsoft creates for its you know computers, laptops, desktops, so on, um, you need to have nimble apps that sit on top of that is that a good summary of what prompt does for the customers yeah we have no interest in being a freight forwarding solution we have no interest in competing directly with cargo wise we see ourselves as a layer on top of all these other systems in order to increase your productivity your throughput and your efficiency and also enable you to run CargoWise and BlueJay in parallel and have the data sync and have a, a unified customer experience so you're not on your your website listing out four different locations to do track and trace right. and that's just that's not the customer experience people want anymore mm. everything should be unified everything should be synced everything should be simple yeah and customizable right and i mean that that to me indicates an intelligent way of tackling this space where you've got some rather large players and you mentioned a few of them there that sit behind the scenes and like you've described you don't have a real desire to disrupt the work of those players, it's sort of like you're augmenting or evolving what they do, giving the customer a centralized place to operate regardless of what happens in the background. I think that's a really incredible way to do it. Could you list off any other differentiators that you have from other providers who are in your space? Sure. So we were one of the first log tech companies to do more than one thing is how I'll phrase it. There's a lot of companies out there that have been doing visibility or booking, or payments, or rates, or automation, or whatever else. And we kind of just thought, if we're going through the effort of building these relationships, if we're going through the effort of a security audit for like a SIVA, once you're in there, and once you've gone through three months of IT audits, if they want to turn on something else, give them an easy way to turn on something else, and then be able to just start upselling from there. So like, we, we never wanted to be a one-trick pony purely because we didn't think it was safe, 
but we also saw that there's a lot of potential out there for people who start with one thing and they go to something else and go to something else. Like even our, our document automation solution, we're not just like AP only. We cover 18 different standard document types for freight forwarding companies ranging from AP to commercial invoices to house and master bills and ocean and air bills and all these other things. And it just, it makes it a lot easier because when somebody says, okay, you're doing commercial invoice for me, can you also do an ISF filing? Mm. The answer is just yes. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So that diversity, I guess, would attract a pretty wide degree of use from a number of different people. Are you seeing an appetite for your services in segments that you hadn't thought of before? You thought these people might use it, but you were quite surprised that they're actually really quite taken by what you built? What we've realized recently is that there are very few companies out there who are just using one piece of software. Right. And the idea that like these people have to create a data warehouse, they have to uh, synchronize this information, they have to present this information to their customers and effectively do this all on their own is something that really, really shocked us. We've been so accustomed to just thinking about like CargoWise land or Magaya land and not really thinking about the overlap, but there's so much overlap. We work with major US domestic trucking players who have a proprietary TMS system and then have CargoWise for their customs and cross-border and they want to tie it together. And their proprietary TMS can't do freight forwarding. They don't understand what a ship is. They don't understand how to drive a truck over the ocean is how some of them phrase it. And so they're using these systems, but they're still running two different locations for all this information. And it's just, it's, it feels very antiquated and I don't think it's going to be acceptable much longer. Right. Yeah. And I've actually seen that because Polling LinkedIn, I keep my eye on the movement of questions that people ask. And I've seen some trucking folks say, oh, hey, I've got two 40-foot high cubes. I need to move them from LA to Shang. Can someone give me a hand with that? And it's interesting to note that when you're in your own segment, you can be very siloed in both your knowledge base and your operational ability. And they're crying out for those sorts of solutions. How can I very easily do this? They're relying on contacts in the industry to try and help them out. But surely, like you've illustrated, surely there has to be a software solution that can kind of stick it all together. Exactly. The other big thing that really differentiated us is we went very deep down the rabbit hole in terms of uh, data security, data privacy, and compliance. Right. So even before we were working with big companies and they brought it up, we went out and we became SOC 2, uh, Type 2, GDPR, and ISO 27001 certified. Wow. Purely so that when people came to us and said, hey, we need you to be this, we just say, okay, done already. Yeah. Like, especially in Europe, and especially because Europe is the center of this entire industry and you have most of the majors somewhere in Europe, you need to be GDPR certified. It's, it's just table stakes. Mm-hmm. And then the others are a plus because it just gives people peace of mind. It, it lets them know that you're serious about their data. You're serious about your your IT stack in general, and that like they can trust you because you're already following these practices. Mm. Yeah, and you're speaking my language here because I've got a background in cybersecurity and systems administration. And I'd say firsthand, when I experienced the startup ecosystems, all that stuff was like secondary. It's like, let's just build the thing and then hope it doesn't get infiltrated or hopefully the data standards will meet You know what the going standard is. 
and it's always a second thought, but as you've just said, you've integrated this into your technology stack, which I think is admirable. No doubt has come with its own difficulties. So let's touch on that. Oh, totally. What, what, what? I mean, you've probably got lots of highlights to share, and it's it's always amazing to hear from vendors. And they, you know, we'll talk it up in particular. Some of them, we won't name them, but out in the industry, they spruik their things by slick marketing campaigns. But you, you, surely you've had some challenges you've had to navigate. Do you want to share any of those? Well, sure. The biggest challenge is we're self-funded. So we grow based on our our revenue growth and so we would love to hire another you know 10 or 15 people at any given moment but we very much need to justify it and say okay sure we have the money now will we have it in six months will we have it in two years um and it's not perfect but it teaches us fiscal discipline it has us focusing on uh growing the top line in order to grow the team itself and it's it's a useful thing that has allowed us to stay in a bit more control and not get over our skis. I, I think it has been a negative for us up until second half 2022 because we didn't have 50, $100 million from a Series A, Series B, like some of the other people. And they're like, oh, well, you must not be as financially solvent. But because we are profitable, because we are able to stand on our own two feet, the conversation has now gone the opposite way. And people are looking at us saying, okay, you are low risk relative to some of these other companies that have 10, 20, $50 million monthly burn rates. Yeah, And that's been very good for us recently. That, that makes me sound like, I just talk about this openly because I think people listening along will appreciate. It makes me sound like you're, you're actually quite an outlier in supply chain logistics technology. Like most of the primary narrative that we hear and people listening along would know this well, you get the rah-rah, you get the top line numbers, you get bizarre redefinitions of what's actually happening with the P&L and balance sheet, but you very rarely get an insight where someone says just plainly and relatively obviously, I mean, this has been happening since Jesus was a boy in business, oh, we're building a profitable company. We're actually standing on our own two feet and we've learned a lot of lessons. The money that we've burnt has been painfully ours and you know painfully small at times, but we've learned those lessons and we've come out all the better for it. I, I feel like you're a bit of an outlier. Is that how you feel from time to time? Yes. Every now and again, I wonder if I'm the uh, the only crazy person and everybody else is being normal. There's another way that I think <laughs> yeah. about it. But I, I think the reality is we just... Uh, we, we tried raising money in 2015 back when there was no money. And from there, we just started going slow and steady and just one foot in front of the other. We really tried to avoid buzzwords. We really tried to speak in, and pardon anybody who this is in the first language, but in English, but really in simple terms that are easily approachable and understood and don't make you feel like we're trying to make you feel stupid or be superior any of those other things because that's not productive so our job is to to keep it simple and deliver on what we say and that's from just a business operation standpoint it's from a financial standpoint our team has full trust in the fact that we're going to hit our numbers every month and every year and they don't look for jobs there's just a lot of I don't want to call it maturity, but we're we're really focusing on delivering versus talking about our ten thousand APIs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we've we've heard a lot of chatter about that, and I get the sense, in particular over the last three or six months, as freight rates have really come off the boil, that you're actually starting to get a lot more desperation in some of those 
announcements. You're actually getting people kind of really trying to yell these top line numbers and some of them have floated or some of them were seeking to float. Some of them were looking for investment dollars. And all of a sudden you've got this situation where the rug gets pulled out from underneath them. They've actually got to stand on their own two feet and perhaps to mix my metaphors, the emperor's got no clothes. So, I mean, tip of the hat to you and your team. I think it's admirable to hear from somebody firsthand about how they've built their business in a responsible fashion. And I get it. There'll be people saying, well, that's not a sexy business that I'd invest in. I would say, hang on, this is a dependable business that's proven what it can do over time. And if that's not worth investing in time, effort, resources, or even money, I don't know what is. So I wish you all yeah. the best in that regard. But well, Thank you. That's, that's no worries. You've earned it. If we think about the future, there's obviously some emerging things that have taken people's attention, and some of them we've touched on already. But do you think there's anything that sort of stands out to you that needs to be navigated or understood that people might have missed or that they might miss unless they pay attention to it? Do you want to speak into the future for a little bit? I think the only one right now that really jumps out at me is there's a big push on scope one, two, and three emissions. And there's a big pushback right now that people can't afford it. And I think at some point, governments are going to say, you know what, figure it out. And we're not there yet, but I think this goes well beyond carbon calculations and carbon credits and and ships with sails and helium-powered drones or anything else that people can come up with at this point. I think somebody's going to have to give, and it might just end up being the consumer pays more money, but emissions are going to become a bigger and bigger piece of uh, logistics, and there's no way around it, and I think people just have to accept it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny how a consumer-led revolution leads to those sorts of changes. I said some time ago that one of the most potent levers that we could pull when it comes to, say, profit-driven change is through the consumer. The consumers are actually going to lead that charge out, and they're already putting pressure on various folk. You've, you've seen a, a few instances now where shareholders have become activists because they, have, they think that their boards aren't moving quickly enough to capture these new opportunities. And people are going after this as a, sure, is planet sustainable, all those sorts of things. They're actually looking at, at, at being a profit-deriving center. So I think it's fascinating that that can become part of the narrative. It's, it's already been a pretty dominant part of the narrative over the last six, 12 months in particular. If you think about that, and perhaps you can think of other ones, what are some things that will feature in prompts future that people should be aware of? Is there any sort of features or updates that you're working on now or you have in the pipeline that you're thinking your way through, which could be interesting for people to know about? We have obviously a very full pipeline like everybody else in tech. Uh, we're very excited about some of our, our new customs-based solutions. So working with uh, customs authorities and um, electronic invoicing and other government providers in places like Latin and South America in order to help forwarders be more compliant. We think customs in general has been an underserved market and we have a bunch of country-specific packages that are coming up over the next couple of months. Um, but I think the biggest thing for us is just better integrating our software with the customer need, better improving our what people can do with it in order to make it as customizable and configurable and multilingual uh, as it possibly can be, which we already have those pieces in place, but it's just scaling it out, making it more and making it more customizable to the end users because 
everybody uses software differently and everybody wants to see their data differently. And the more we can empower people, the stickier our software is going to be. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's a very interesting point there about empowerment because that's a very human element to how these things work. And like you mentioned right at the start, sort of bookending this, we're a people-centric industry and you've got people who are making the case for why technology needs to augment that. I think if I can take one observation away from this, your approach, um, whilst not singularly unique, I think is an outlier um, in terms of honoring what people are doing inside the industry, wanting to make their experience better. And like you've just said, empowering them to use better data, data, as we would say. Um, I think it's a really great way that you've set your company up because not only is it trying to solve for some of those issues that we've described, sustainability and otherwise, you're actually commercially sustainable. So I'll give you the final word here. If you can think of one thing that you would encourage people listening along to consider as they think about technology in their own supply chain, what would that consideration be? That's a tough one. You've only got one. You can only have one. There might be 10. You need to narrow it down to just one. Consider what happens if nearshoring actually works. People are looking for ways to be greener. People are looking for ways to cut down on costs. And the closer you can manufacture something to where it ends up is a good thing overall. And we're seeing already in North America, Mexico is becoming a place of high interest for a lot of companies. In Europe, Africa is becoming a very interesting place probably Asia for Africa as well. India is doing more, especially with Apple over the past couple of years with iPhone and chip design and manufacturing. I think this whole idea that all goods are going to come from one location, then ship around the world is probably something that's going to be less meaningful over the next 20 years. But we need to start thinking now about how that's going to impact every piece of the supply chain because it's really not an easy thing to do. There was a great article, I think, six months ago in the Financial Times about how Solomon, the uh, apparel and shoe company, tried doing more manufacturing in Europe and cutting out Asia entirely. And it was just a extraordinarily hard experience because the companies in Europe just aren't equipped to handle the volume, to handle the uh, the standards and all these other pieces that are just second nature in a place like China or a place like Malaysia. And all these locations and all these companies are going to have to up their game in order to facilitate and enable nearshoring to actually happen. That's a great thought to finish on because it definitely um, brings it back centrally to Asia Pac and the region that I'm a part of, the exciting explosive growth we're seeing throughout Southeast Asia and India and other related countries. Um, fascinating to watch. And I think the next decade is going to be a, not predominantly, but definitely will have a very Asian flavor to it. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your insights and for coming on the show and talking with me about this. Again, I very much appreciate your approach and your genuine nature when it comes to your business. And I wish you all the best with that. But thanks again, Robert. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being here. Well, there you have it, folks, another episode of Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia Pacific, and we thank Rob for his time. It's always great to talk with someone who is both genuine about their business 
but has also taken a stance of enhancing commercial sustainability as a core tenant of the existence of their business. Something that we don't see often in supply chains, unfortunately. Some folk have gone on a marketing angle to try and spruik what their business does, and the slick marketing gets in the way. But we can see from Rob and subsequently from the team at Prompt that they aren't letting that happen. They're talking from a position of realism, which I think is a real position of strength. It actually allows their business to be profitable over a longer period of time. We're going to look forward to talking with other vendors and other suppliers across the rest of these episodes. Another five to go on Let's Talk Supply Chain Asia Pacific. So do tune in for the rest of them. And if you want to engage with us, reach out to us on social media or through our other channels. We'd love to hear from you. Any comments, thoughts or questions. Thank you.